0: Welcome back to Out of Our Minds. I'm with Tim and Mary Lee, and this is Children and Danger, Part 2. Hello. And hi, Tim. Hi, Mary Lee. Thanks for coming in.
1: Thank you, Andrew. And I say
0: coming in, and I mean thank you for hosting me at your house for this <laughs> yeah, recording. Yeah. The, the first section of this, the first half of this conversation, covered a lot about physical danger, raising children, not overprotecting them or neglecting them and leaving them to get hurt. We also talked about exposure to sexual danger and abuse and in this section we're covering some more on that topic but also a lot of the spiritual consequences and risks that parents have to balance and make decisions about in their home as they raise their kids so mary lee you want to start it for us i'd like to start
2: by having a recounting a couple nights ago mary lee and i uh Mary Lee is. She loves fun. She loves going up any road that has a no trespass sign on it. And uh, road so close signs yeah, are meant I for going have, around. <laughs> I have driven down many of those roads, although I have also said no that I wasn't going to drive down many of those roads. Mary Lee loves to be an encouragement to other people, and she loves to ha- help people to have fun. She just got back from watching our. Granddaughter Mary Louise uh, in a show, a horse show over at the local horse barn. And uh, there were how many people there from our family watching her?
1: Mm, probably 20.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not hard to get up a crowd of 20. So Mary Lee, the other night, we had gotten back from Michigan, and she decided that it was a good night for us to have the children over. And we have a ton of leaves, and they, had, they were making a pile at the end of our uh, zip line. Ben and his sons, Zion and Daniel, and I don't remember whether or not his other kids helped, but helped me put up a zip line. And it's a great little zip line, it doesn't go too fast, doesn't go too slow, it's 200 feet. And so we we're going to have the kids ride the zipline. And also, we had bought a seat that has like blinking lights, LED lights, so that it right. Sure. Yeah, of course. You can ride it. Ride a flying saucer there. <laughs> yeah, that's mm-hmm. what it looks like, yeah. And then at the end, there was a huge pile of leaves. And so the kids spent several hours just riding the zip line, a long line of them. Grandchildren all came over, and some of the grandparents came over, and Now, I set that up. Mary Lee had hot dogs. We had a fire. They were roasting hot dogs and then s'mores. And uh, Josiah brought his Bose portable speaker and played some tunes. Uh, Now, picture that. Half an hour before the children are coming, Mary Lee and I are talking. And Mary Lee says, I just feel so sick in my stomach. And I assumed it was physical. I said, so what's wrong? And then she teared up, and she began to say because of because of our because of our lunch, it was so awful and so this is this was a new thing for me to have Mary Lee not up for all the grandchildren having fun at our house at night with a campfire and I'm telling you that story because Mary Lee and I." go from one of these situations to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Most of them now that I have resigned my pulpit at uh, Trinity Reform Church, most of them now are other churches, other parts of the country. This one was another part of the country, uh, a church and its leadership that I have never worked with before. And I wanted to tell that story at the beginning because I want us to understand that we do live in Canaan. We are surrounded by Canaanites, and as always happens with the people of God, the people of God give themselves to the very sins of the Canaanites. The Canaanites sacrifice their children to Moloch. We kill our children with birth control and abortion. The Canaanites committed all the most horrendous perversions sexually The people of God do the same. The statistics are better, but not much. And so with that as a beginning, please listen to us because we do have experience. And we have enough experience that a lot of this is muscle memory for us. And so if you question some of the things that we say, And think, well, that's not necessary. Or, well, that's not true of me and my children or my husband. It's not true of my church. It's not. Precisely at that point, you should stop yourself and say, am I sure? Because of the weight of our experience and spending lives dealing with this terrible, terrible sin. So, with that as a light and cheerful introduction, whoever...
1: Um, I'm not sure that you made the connection between lunch. We actually had lunch with a couple from a different church that the conversation and discussion was what left me feeling ill. Anyway.
0: (laughs) It wasn't the sandwiches. Right, exactly.
1: (laughs)
2: And they were out of state. They drove here to, to have lunch with
1: us. So one of the things, though, that comes to mind immediately following that lunch conversation is how frequently people want to prioritize relationships and good vibes and good feelings over um safety of children or dealing with the reality of what's happening with children so in this case there was a man who had started coming to the church he was a single man and um you know presents well everybody's kind of impressed with him he's cool he's good looking he's you know so he uh, starts dating their daughter, but when it comes out that he's starting to admit to people that he is attracted to children and has had some pretty serious perversions in his past, they, of course, this couple is, you know, high red alert, want their daughter to break up with him immediately when um, this couple wants to have it all, you know, kind of confronted, the uh, elders don't want to deal with it they think it's probably fine. You know, it's going to bring tension and awkwardness and all kinds of bad feelings, you know, to the relationships in the church if it's really talked about and dealt with. And that is just a classic. Um, that happens in families all the time. If, you know, a, a child starts to say, Grandpa's, you know, doing this or doing that, the parents don't really want to deal with it. It's like, oh, honey, you know, it's it's probably not that bad. It's, you know, let's just not talk about it or whatever. Um, So I just want to caution everybody that you cannot just prioritize the relationships in a family or a church when there are souls and the safety of children.
2: So this is not just
0: true of the sexual abuse of children, is it, Andrew? It's true of all kinds of things. As you were saying that, Mary Lee, I was thinking There is a tension, it's one that every individual family, every couple has to grapple with in their particular church context for how the elders and officers of a church will or will not intervene in things that are in some ways ambiguously within their purview. It's not the job of the elders necessarily to decide who dates who in a church. They can have input on that but but certainly if
1: so if you, you look at that to... question
0: of the elders not wanting to engage in that you could say well they're abdicating their responsibility but there is some plausible room there for them to say this is not our job to step in and deal with this because what this is isn't isn't always clear or the decision Of who can
2: marry whom, which is often an area where people in the church fault their pastors and elders for not disallowing marriages. Okay. Okay? Because they look at a couple, and they don't like the man, they don't like the woman, and so— the, the women, generally, it's the women, they will talk and they will decide that the pastor and the elders don't give a rip about the people if they're allowing that couple to marry. I got a call on the way to doing a wedding recently where somebody in our church called me to tell me basically that they didn't think I should be doing the marriage. And so I had to walk them through this whole thing about how, look, I am not interested in deciding what is a wise marriage. That's not my purview. I will only decide if God's blessing cannot rest on a marriage, and I will not do that marriage. Now, right. the most obvious thing is if one a Christian is marrying an unbeliever or if there's been a divorce and it was not under the biblical exceptions of desertion and adultery, things like that. So I'm trying to say to you, Andrew, that I'm very sympathetic, very understanding of us needing to be observant of the boundaries Between being intrusive and controlling and being overextended in places that we feel we're responsible. Mary Lee said to me a week ago, a week and a half ago about a local situation that's not in our church. But she said, that's not your responsibility. And so then you have an argument. Is
0: it or is it not our responsibility? Yep if I become a black hole for responsibility in every problem that I see, no I have to intervene yourself. in. There's actually some interesting, um, we use the term high responder and low responder. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a basic categorization that mixes some personality type, some level of training, some willingness to engage, some tolerance for conflict. Some people are low responders and are very content to walk away from a serious, potentially life-threatening situation. And they look at it and go, that's not my problem, and they can walk away from it and be calm about it, and there are other people who are viscerally, immediately compelled to intervene. They cannot walk mm-hmm. away, and part of part of knowing yourself is knowing, hey, if I see things, am I going to go on autopilot and just jump right in there without counting the cost, mm. or am I going to be too likely to walk away from something that I should help with and just go... That's not clearly written into my contract. That's not my problem. I'm not going to intervene. And there are ditches on both sides of that. Um, I tend to be a moderately low responder because I have practiced low responding. I have made myself not intervene in certain things that I see because there's no end to the things that I could be like, oh, I could I could do something about that, whether it'd be helpful is a separate question.
2: Well, let me say this. After my years of work with Mary Lee and the elders and pastors of my church, I've never seen such a thing as a low responder. I'm, I mean, a high responder or an over responder when it comes to the abuse of children. Never seen it. I've right. Never seen it. And so I want to say that that when it comes to children, and I can make the case easily by just talking about the preborn children in the mother's womb. Do we have a problem in America with overresponding in protection of preborn children? Absolutely not.
0: <laughs> and why not? And the minute I say why not, you know why not? Why? Well, we have a guilty conscience. We're complicit. The sin is everywhere in our churches. But also the consequences of intervening. Yeah, because the obvious okay the obvious is because that baby can't talk.
2: That baby has no demands on our sympathy. That baby will never have a museum of it being emaciated and burned with the chemicals. That baby's body goes into the dumpster. There will be, never be a Holocaust it museum. Gets deleted. Yeah. It's, 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 it's much more. Yeah. I mean, that little baby is innocent and defenseless. It can't even open its mouth. Okay. And so that's the nature of the abuse of children. Predators against children are overwhelmingly powerful. You can look at Monica Lewinsky and say, "Well, she was in an unequal relationship with President Clinton, but at least she was an adult woman." But these these little children have people threatening them. I'm going to hurt your mommy and daddy. I'm going to make them mad at you if you ever tell them anything about this. Your daddy's going to lose his job. You know they have all these ways. Of You know, they wouldn't believe you if you told them anyhow, ha, 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 you know, yeah. the things that are done to children to shut them up. And little children are really quite easy to shut up unless you're dealing with, you know, a presumptuous little child, you know. And so I, I, I'm glad you raised the issue of being over-responsive, but I want to make it very clear. In this particular case that we were dealing with this week— there is the reason Mary Lee was crying and sick at her stomach was because the betrayal of the trust of a shepherd was so awful. That's why. And it wasn't just that anytime you get into sexual abuse of children, you also get into uh, the, the preceding history And it always comes up. I don't know many cases at all. I don't know if I can remember any where we have dealt with a predator and we have dealt with the abuse of a child without that child himself or his or her parents or the predator having been themselves involved in sexual perversion and abuse when they were children. And so immediately you're sympathetic. Well, I mean, he was abused when he was a child by a neighbor boy. And so, of course, this is what he's doing, you know. But I said to this couple, when we were with them because, you know, they were bringing up the fact that some of the people that were not being responsible in this situation and were trying to hide it, they were bringing up the fact of what good people they are and how they have been so helpful in so many ways and everything and you know what they were basically saying was we don't want to have this situation uh cost us those relationships yeah and also we there was another individual involved who themselves had suffered the manipulation and abuse of a sexual predator for many years and so at that point you say, well, if we're not going to take action because of the closeness of the relationships, if we're not going to take action because the people involved have done many good things with their lives, if we're not going to take action because the person who's the predator themselves was abused when they were children. What we all need to do is just say, you know, really, let's just let's just forget the whole thing and and dump it all on Adam. Yeah. Because that's the only place it stops. <laughs> you know, if if people's themselves being subjects to, to abuse formally in their
0: life and then reproduce it. It's not my fault. I'm just a domino in a long, long, but long then you chain of keep, dominoes. Yeah, you
2: have to keep chasing those dominoes back. That's what people... Who promote the cancel culture don't realize they don't realize that that cancellation goes back to Adam, and every generation has serious reasons to be canceled. And of course, they don't realize that they themselves will be
0: canceled soon. Yeah. So Mary Lee, on the in the context of that particular lunch and that specific issue, the if in a sense the die is not cast, this young couple is not married. There's an opportunity to intervene there and avoid a lifetime of physical consequences, spiritual consequences, relational consequences. It could it's a it's a fork in the road and everything's at stake. And it seems to you that the leadership of that church in question was just deciding to not be involved. So in in the context of a couple that's considering marriage and looking back at the sexual histories of the man and woman that are considering marriage, and they're going through premarital counseling. They're looking at the potential of a life together, raising a family together. There are forks in the road throughout our entire lives. Marriage is one of the single biggest ones where once you go down that path, you cannot just rewind the tape. There's no command Z. And when you said it's not your job, not your purview to decide on what is a wise marriage, There is a very wide range of wise marriages, okay marriages, Mm -hmm. and then a lot of really unwise marriages. And the options for an unwise marriage greatly outnumber the available options for a wise marriage. And so, Mary Lee, is it fair to say that part part of the weight and the tension of young couples considering who they're going to date, who they're going to marry, is that in some sense that die isn't cast yet. And if you go all in with that person, the consequences can be a lifetime of spiritual destruction, physical consequences, and you it's, it's way, way harder to try to undo or deal with that later than to just not go down that road.
1: Yes, absolutely. If a man admits or confesses that he is sexually attracted to tiny babies, you do not want any young woman in your church to marry him, much less your daughter, especially, because what are they never going to have children? You know, so it's like where do you even go with that? Um, we know another situation recently in one of the churches where there's a couple with um, several small children and the man was just caught in adultery but as that you know came out it turned out he was you know had been involved with men he'd been involved with you know just a lot of different sexual sort of had done everything perversions and, yeah and the mother was fearful for her children in the future wasn't couldn't say for sure that something hadn't already happened with their father anyway by the end though um she her i think the fear of Her future took over, and the husband, of course, you know, repented. Very manipulative
2: and bright, man.
1: Confessed it. You know, so anyway, in the end, she decides, oh, she's just going to go back with him. Everything will probably be fine. You know, he's repented. He's going to be different from now on. Um, But then, of course, they actually had to leave the church um, because the church was, was wanting to protect her children and her. You know,
2: and in that case, it is very specifically the purview of elders and their wives and the pastors and their wives to tell that woman that she must not go back to them because this is an exceedingly wicked sin set of sins he gave himself to. And it was clear to them that he was not repentant, that he was lying. Well, this is the essence of church discipline. Right. This is not,
0: uh, you know, meddling. Yeah, it's also not chemistry. We don't put these three substances together and get an absolutely definitive answer that this is the case.
1: One of the things I wanted to do, though, is just to sort of open up the uh, reality of sexual abuse in children just by reading some statistics. Go for Um, it. So try not to have your eyes glaze over, but one in four girls and one in six boys— were abused before the age of eighteen,
0: and where? What is the source of these statistics?
1: You know what? They are all over the internet. Sorry, I okay. don't know. You know, I didn't even write down a specific. Um, but ninety percent of the time, it is uh, done by someone known by the child. Yeah, okay. these
2: statistics are so, so common, so banal today in America that all you have to do if you want to know whether they're true is go online and just search just search anywhere and you sh- you choose the sources you want they're not going to be far off of what she's reading in all
0: of these areas
1: right so again 90% of the time it's done by someone which is known by the child so and the
0: stranger danger with a candy van is not
1: exactly mm, not, not the, the risk not the big warning that the kids need um 60% of the time it's by someone the family trusts by an older or more powerful child, 30% by family members, and only 10% of the time it's done by strangers. So just to open that up a little bit more, I'm going to give you the list of possibilities of people who do and have molested children. Grandfathers, uncles, boy cousins, girl cousins, babysitters, male and female, Brothers, sisters, fathers, stepfathers, mothers, music teachers, Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders, single guy in your small group. So, does that give you a picture?
0: Sports coaches, step- yes, yes, stepmothers, yeah, 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 neighbor I mean, kids.
1: So, you know, it, absolutely, But
0: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But I, I personally know um, every, people who have been molested in every, every single one of those. One of those. It. Yeah. So do I. Yeah. So, um, that's the thing that we need to be particularly aware of as we just kind of go through our daily lives and think about how are we going to protect our children? Because there's a fine line between really being careful, protecting our children and all these different types of relationships and living just in fear and creating fear and paranoia in our children.
2: Let me back up a little bit. There is such a thing as overprotectiveness, which in turn causes the very thing that that protectiveness is trying to prevent. Years ago, we had a young woman in our church die in the value jet crash in the Everglades. And years afterward, uh, the New Yorker ran a long article. and. The thesis of the article, or the conclusion, was that after all the investigation was over, they concluded that steps taken to prevent the value jet crash into the Everglades would cause more crashes. If they put in place the steps, the regulations, the standards that would have prevented that crash, those implementations would cause there to be more and not fewer crashes of airplanes. And the reason is that the value jet crash was caused by such extraordinary circumstances that if you were to try to prevent those extraordinary circumstances, you would cause everybody who was responsible for safety in the air to become inured to regulations and stipulations because they would see how absurd it was to tell somebody that you may not pick your nose with your left index finger if your right index finger is available because the chance of getting a nosebleed if you do it with your left is greater than your right yeah and the minute you get into things like that people they're just like are you insane And you say, well, there was once a crash where a guy was picking his nose with a left finger. Got a nosebleed, nosebleed and the next thing you knew, 110 people in the Everglades. And so be very aware of the fact that we're going to be talking about some horrible things. And you may think that no action and no thought should be left unturned, undone, unsaid, given the horror. But you're wrong. You must have your priority being living by faith under Jesus Christ. You must trust God, our Heavenly Father, with your children. And there are many reasons to be fearful about that. But if you spend your time concentrating on the dangers to your children, you will never teach them and lead them and discipline them. And 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 grow them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, because you're just going to be psycho.
1: Yeah, this um, I think fits in here. Tim has talked to people, men in the past, who you know will say something like, "Oh, I would never commit adultery." And he said, "Well, you're an idiot, and you're going to be the first person who's going to fail and fall into that temptation because you're not even protecting yourself because you are so sure, cocky." Yeah, that that is not going to happen to you. And I think how that fits into here is parents can easily think that would never happen in my family, that would never happen in my church, and therefore you are preparing, you know, the very um, types of scenarios because you're not protecting.
0: You're you're you know? pre-excluding the possibility, yeah. and therefore you're not willing
2: to even yeah. see it. Yeah. Let me let me give an illustration on the opposite side. So. I've said before on this podcast that we never, I never saw my daughters in their underwear. Never, ever, never saw. And well, I mean, you know, I'm not talking about diapers. I'm talking about when they got older and people might say, Oh, okay. Well, that means that if I'm going to protect my husband from, I'm not going to let my daughters did it, did it, did it. Well, so then let's say that mother either had sex with her sisters when she was little or was abused by her brothers or her father or her grandfather or something like that. And then she hears me say, well, I never saw my daughters. That mother, when she implements that rule, which has never occurred to her until she hears me say that, she is – the next time she sees a daughter walking through the living room in her bra, she is going to go – Well, that's a disproportionate response. The daughter having her mother go wacko on her, what is that daughter going to think, either consciously or unconsciously? She's going to think, my mom just went wacko. I wonder why my mother went wacko. I mean, okay, I won't. I'll, I'll cover up when I go into the living room next time. But, I mean, for heaven's sakes, I thought a nuclear bomb dropped. And listen, what that causes is that causes that daughter to have lower level of respect for the danger of immodesty, not up. It doesn't cause her to have a higher view of the need for modesty, it causes her to realize her mother's wacko. And so she begins to question the rule itself because she knows it. Her mother's rule came out of some wacko place. So be very careful on this stuff that you don't project your own sins of the past by being wacko in your implementation of guards for the present. So I I just want to be very clear there are dangers on both sides of this issue, overprotective and underprotective.
1: Yeah, I think one of the other types of scenarios that you might see that is when a parent comes across children who are, you know, playing doctor or, or just kind of being, you know, inappropriate with each other, experimental, you know, types of things that children can easily get into. But the mother freaks out, you know, and just completely Loses Over, it. yeah, loses it and overreacts. And then, but, you know, without really having a healthy uh, explanation, you know, and then the kids really sort of what they're learning is to just be more sneaky in the future. Yeah. Do a know? better job hiding that next time. <laughs> right.
2: Can you talk about coming in and crying with me in the anger that day?
1: Mm. Um, I can see if I can remember the details. We were talking to, there was a
2: so there was there was a situation again in another state where a father had a son. The son actually had been abused years earlier uh but anyhow, the father had a son, and the son abused a grandchild, so one of his siblings' children the son was the youngest son and so for a period of a couple years, we were involved on some level with that father. And how he was going to handle that son, okay? And so, this was several years into it, he was, he, he was up here, and he was in this room in our study, and he was talking, and I don't remember if there was somebody else. I don't think there was anybody else in the room, but anyhow, there may have been one other man. But anyhow, this man proceeded to talk about how his son had done it again, and This father was frustrated with his children that they weren't accepting the apology of the son and that they were taking steps to guard their children against the son. And this father was so tender to this son that he felt that it was unfair to this son. Now, now mind you, the son has done it to two two separate times to his cousins. All right. Little girl cousins. Two different victims. Two different victims. Actually, there were more than that, but there were two that were, he was related to. So Mary Lee comes into the house. I think it was a Saturday and you're in the kitchen working. Well, you hear the conversation in this room. And I'm sort of, well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a difficult. Yeah, that's a, yeah, you know. I, well, I think you need to, but, you know, that's difficult.
1: Well, I, when I was gone, I knew that this whole scenario was being discussed and I thought there was going to be a conclusion of exactly how these little girls were going to be protected in the future and how this young man was going to be disciplined or, you know, I just thought there were steps being taken that that was the whole purpose of the conversation that night. And when the man got up and left and it was clear to me, nothing had been decided or figured out you know he was so smooth at his own presentation and he
2: snookered your husband
1: (laughs) yes Yes, he did (laughs) so and that was where i was just kind of like wait what it just happened because when are we going to protect little girls instead of protect the perpetrator which again it just it sounds crazy but you just see it over and over again but
2: she came in she stood over me she had tears coming out of her eyes and she said when are we going to protect the little girls and it was like a bullet i just was completely vulnerable to the grief and anger of my wife and i realized why I had done what I had done. I had done it because I knew that this man did not have a good marriage. I knew his wife was not pleased with us and anything we'd ever done. I knew that one of his closest friends uh, might get angry at me if I handled it firmly. This man was a pastor. This man had been a missionary. Those are pressures on another pastor. This man had other siblings. I mean, not siblings. This man had other uh, children, and I would find out what the children thought of us up here in Bloomington. There were so many relationships that were so volatile, and he had never taken my advice before. And I had no authority over him. And so those are my excuses. In other words, I wanted to be snookered. I wanted to be passive. Now, at the same time, we had a family here in town who had a son that the father was very precious about. And this son had twice molested his younger sister. And, without going into the details, because if I went into the details, it would become clear to anybody in Bloomington related to Trinity reformed who it was and what it was. Um, but the elders and the pastors had handled this situation very firmly, but this man and his wife were so precious towards this older brother for reasons that I'm not going to go into that they kept him in the home, knowing full well that they could not possibly keep him in that home and have their younger daughter safe. And so, as Mary Lee's saying, when are we going to protect the girls? And I know what's going on, and I know why everybody is hovering and not being decisive in this situation. Because, you know, you're reticent as a church to have the elders bring it to the point where we're going to discipline you if you don't do exactly what we say. And that's what needed to happen. Elders actually spend countless hours before they get to that position in most cases. Well, then what I did the next morning was after I got done preaching the first service, we have a a time of of Sunday school we used to. And uh, so it gives me some time to work with people either then or after the second service. And as it happened, the man from out of town was in worship that morning and the other man was there too. And so I called them both into my office. I said, I want to talk to you both. I think that day I did not have anybody else in the office with me, which is very unusual. Normally I would call David Carell to come in. And that day... I sat them down. They didn't know each other. They they knew nothing about each other. I sat them down and I said, I want you to know, turning to the one man, that yesterday Mary Lee came in and she was so angry she was crying when she heard our conversation. And it woke me up. And then I turned to the other man and I said, both of you have something in common. And that is neither one of you are concerned about protecting the little girls who are the victims of the men that you're precious about. And I
0: really
2: dealt with them. I mean, there is a way of dealing with people that they know they've been dealt with. And especially when I'm there confessing that my wife had to rub my nose in my failure, you know, that has a certain moral authority. And, you know, the point is, If I, Tim Bailey, am telling you that I have failed in these situations, and that's not the only time, and I warn you that my experience is always that we cover these things up, and particularly pastors and elders, then take warning. You know, you've heard Mary Lee's statistics. Now... If we're to take warning, then we need to discuss the question of how we go about doing the right thing as parents in protecting them from this, and then discovering it, and then bringing it to the church. How the church people should handle it. In other words, we have to say what is the right way of handling these things. Right now, Andrew, when we tried to record this before, you had. A section where you talked about the necessity of um,
0: reporting. Yes, and I want that to get the in. the section on the necessity of reporting was actually in the first section of this oh, podcast. Was it really, so we, we got that. Okay. Uh, there was one other particular thing, though, I did want to mention, which is there's an acronym DARVO, D A R V O, and it stands for deny, attack, and then reverse victim-offender. And that is a very, it's a its a descriptive acronym for a certain pattern of behavior that frequently surfaces when someone is confronted over sexual abuse. When you confront a perpetrator, that almost always, if they can deny that it happened or deny that it was what you think it was, they'll deny. And then if the proof is incontrovertible and they can't deny, you have witnesses, you have text messages, you have screenshots, you have whatever evidence there is that catches them out and they can't just say, no, you're imagining that, then almost always the immediate next response is to go on the attack and blame the person who's reporting it, blame the victim, and try to invert the relationship between the victim and offender. And usually one of the main focuses that they drive around that inversion is the consequences of this that you're trying to impose upon me are victimizing me. I'm a mm-hmm. victim because you're trying to isolate me from my family. You're trying to destroy my relationships. You're vindictively trying to cost me my job or destroy my marriage or separate my children and my grandchildren from me. And that the if they can direct the attention and the emphasis onto how much they're going to have to suffer in the process of experiencing these consequences, then that greatly reduces – the attention and care focused on the victims of the sexual abuse that are the reason this whole thing has come up in the first place. So that in particular is a thing that Christians are not usually prepared for. If you're dealing with a person who's willing to victimize children, that person doesn't give a shit about lying. That person lives. That person lives lies. And that isn't to say that a person who's caught in that sin can't repent. And oftentimes, if a person has a conscience, being caught is, this is a weird way to say it, it's the best thing that could happen to them. It is a mercy from God Mm -hmm. that somebody else noticed and is willing to intervene. But that's not the majority of the cases. That's not the most common response. Typically, it's going to be deny, obfuscate, try to make the situation as ambiguous as possible, argue lots and lots of little points of fact, gaslight people who saw things that they were concerned about, and then try to recast themselves as the one who's being persecuted wrongly. And if they can... if. Christians, we, we don't want to persecute people wrongly. We have a conscience about hurting people. We're not trying to go out and harm people for the fun of it. And if we can get maneuvered around to thinking more about how much it's going to be painful for the perpetrator to have to mm-hmm. suffer these consequences, everything gets out of whack and we're willing to just pass. On actually protecting the little girls, Mm -hmm. actually limiting future interactions, actually setting up reasonable Mm guardrails, because we can't, in a very real sense, we cannot stop the victimization of all children. It's not possible to end child abuse the same way that we can't stop all robbing of houses. But you can make it harder for your house to get robbed. You can protect the things that are under your purview, under your responsibility, the children that are in your life that you have to care for. But particularly that inversion of the victim-offender relationship is very, very typical, and it's usually very subtle. And people who abuse children typically are able to abuse children because they are skillful at manipulating people. They're able to play on trust And play on empathy and cast themselves as a victim in order to escape scrutiny.
2: You know, were you going to say something, Love?
1: Yeah, but I'll wait. No, go ahead. Well, I'm trying to, you know, like we said. But what what's good? What's a family to do? What are the parents to do? So, one of the things that you can do is have a good marriage. Because it's just true that children who are secure in a healthy home with parents who have a good marriage are going to be less likely, not totally immune, but much less likely to be victimized. Because the people you're talking about, those perpetrators, know how to find weak children and children who need and want attention. So that is one thing uh, which just feels a little too broad, but yes, yep. work on your home, work on your marriage. You know, we had a,
2: <clears throat> we have been for many for decades. We have been warning the people of our church about incest, sexual abuse, inappropriate relationships, immodesty. Not to make them psycho, but just we normally warn. <clears throat> and we had a couple where there are certain young children that when they present publicly, it's very clear that they have not been owned by their father. I don't have the time to stop and explain that here, but they're WAIFs, W-A-I-F-S. And if you don't have that as a category for little children, get it, because it's a very important diagnostic tool. And there was a little girl in our church that was a WAIF. She had godly parents. They were in our church. We like them, but there was something about that little girl that was unhinged. She was just ready to not receive, grounded. Yeah, she was ready to receive attention, to be handled, to be picked up, anything by anybody. You could just see it with the way that she would throw herself at, at people. And so, specifically, I went to that father and mother and told them that their daughter was a waif emotionally. And that they needed to intentionally think about how to ground her in their affection, their love, their proprietary feelings their jealousy, their owning her as their daughter. And that they needed to be very careful that she was not taken advantage of. I, honestly, I don't know why. But they went to a family reunion. She was molested not long after that. And I think they had had an argument about whether or not to allow her to be with one of of her cousins. I think it was. And I think they had disagreed, the two of them. I don't remember who was a goody and who was the baddie, you know. And sure enough, the one saying no was right. And I remember them crying telling me when they got back from that what had happened and how they hadn't listened and so um you have to be very careful to hear our warnings i I had my son taylor tell me after listening to our podcast some time ago on global warming and he said, man, you, you, he says, you're, you, you're like an environmentalist. You're like into global warming. You believe in it. You drive a Prius. You're, you've got geothermal. You were going on and on about how I compost all my styrofoam. Yeah, my yeah, peppers yeah, have yeah, never yeah. been worse. <laughs> and I was shocked to realize that I had been con- so concerned about the listeners who have that moral sort of judgment about people that consume fossil fuels. That I had gone overboard in presenting to the listeners my agreement that actually we should be conservative economically in our consumption of fossil fuels, which is why I drove a diesel rabbit, why I drove a Prius. It doesn't require repairs ever. It didn't cut it with my son, Taylor. He did not appreciate, you know, he was very nice about it, but he did. Well, I'm thinking about that right now about this sexual abuse thing. I don't want our warnings about overreaction to keep you from acting. I would much rather you overreact than you do what everybody does, which Every single person tries to not see it, not act, not speak up, not discipline, not report. That is universally true, okay? And furthermore, you just said the vast majority of cases, they will uh, attack and they will flip the victim to themselves. No, 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 no. That's not true. It's not the vast majority. Every single <laughs> case does that. Every single case, it's mind-boggling how good abusers of children and older brothers and incest, it's it's mind-boggling how good they are at consuming the attention and getting the focus on themselves and leaving the waif, leaving the victim, leaving the little child uh, neglected and forgotten. Because everybody's falling all over themselves trying to prove that this church has grace for sinners. I remember one pastor friend of mine, well-known guy, and I mean he handled a situation of the abuse of uh, in his church. And he was just talking and talking and talking and talking about how important it is that that we show that the mercy of God extends to the worst sins and how they ministered to this man. and da-da, 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 And then published warnings to his victim and to her father, warnings about how you failed to protect your daughter. So you know, on the one hand, they're giving all this time. To the abuser trying to make sure he gets the Lord's Supper, he gets fellowship, he's he has love, he has preach. He, oh, he just has, you know, they because they believe in grace. But then at the same time, blaming the victim. Now I'm not big into blaming the victim, right? In other words, as a concept, I think it's over overused. But in this case, this was the perfect example of blaming the victim and her father. And yeah, her father had failed. She'd failed. She, yeah, of course. But the attention ended up being given by that church to the perp. Mm-hmm. And that proved that they were really Christian and sensitive and believed in grace. And that's usually in the church how this stuff all happens. It's
0: all in an attempt to prove that we believe in forgiveness and we believe in grace. Yeah. I actually wanted to circle back to a thing you said a minute ago, but that distinction you just made about the, it, it's the question of the difference between forgiveness and trust. I can mm-hmm. forgive a person for harming me, but that does not mean that I am required to restore the same level of trust and access as they had before. Mm-hmm. And if you conflate those two, any unwillingness to trust gets reframed as an unwillingness to forgive. And if I had somebody steal from me, you know, if one of my employees stole a bunch of money from my business, I can, at the same time, without there being any conflict between these two things, forgive that person, fire them, and press charges. Those three things are not in conflict in any way, Mm -hmm. and the wisdom of firing them or the wisdom of pressing charges against them will be context-dependent. There might be, conceivably, I could imagine a case where an employee stole something from me and I forgave them and I fired them but did not press charges, or where I forgave them and I did not fire them and I did not press charges— those th- three things are not an automatic package. They're not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. They they are not operating in the same category. It is one thing to forgive a person's sins. It's a completely different thing to enable them to perpetrate again without there being any guardrails or forethought to protecting the people who are around them. But back to your comment about having a good marriage. um. She wasn't talking about us. Of course not. Of course not. (laughs) Present company accepted. Um, When you talk about the category of a waif and you talk about having a good marriage, Mary Lee, when a husband and wife are not on the same page or do not trust each other's judgment or one is in the overprotective ditch and the other one's in the passive, abdicating, negligent ditch, the kids do end up in between, And certainly if something happens to that child and they go, if I tell mom or dad, all they're going to do is fight about it and be angry with me for bringing it up, that even if you have um, a husband and wife in the picture, it may not be the case that the, ch- the child has a pair of adults, yeah. a husband and wife team that they can go to where the husband and wife will be on the same team. And very often, if somebody who's an abuser who gets caught, if they can drive a wedge and get one parent on their side, the victim's father or the mother, on their side, the ability to actually enforce consequences and any kind of discipline becomes exponentially harder because you are stuck between those two.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I just want to go back to... Um, talking to the parents who are like, okay, what do we do now? Uh, one is prayer. You know, we we just always want to be raising our children mm-hmm. in prayer. Um, oh. And so we never want to just sideline that as like, oh, I guess all I can do is pray. No. We pray for God's protection and wisdom for us as parents.
2: Let me emphasize that by... Uh, saying that we all lost a father in this church a few years ago, Adam Spadey. He was a physician. And Adam was, without a doubt, the best elder that we ever were privileged to have. He died in his sleep suddenly at the age of 40, leaving six children behind and his wife. His anniversary of death was this last week. Uh, Our church will never be the same. It was that... A terrible of a death, but we trust God with it. Now I bring Adam up because Adam used to laugh about the fact that people would say, "Well, uh, they just don't know what's wrong with me, and we've tried everything we could, but the only thing we have to do now is pray." And he said, "I keep telling people that the truth is we should start with prayer and asking the great physician to heal us, and and then." we should fall to lower level things of going to doctors. (laughs)
1: Mm
2: -hmm. It was always a helpful thing that Adam would remind us Mm of. So go ahead. We start with prayer.
1: Okay. So another thing is if you yourself have um, some kind of molestation or sexual abuse in your past, you really need to deal with that Um, because you are broken and wounded in ways that you do not understand. You think you're normal um, because you just grew up with all this stuff, but you are broken and therefore not able to meet the needs of your children in the way that they need. Mm -hmm. So you need to deal with your own history. We have a friend who was uh, raped by her father when she was five. She said she planned to go to her grave with that secret. And I think that's usually or very, very often the case, Um, even maybe more with men than women because it's yes, so yeah. mortifying for them to acknowledge what... It
2: destroys your manhood. Yeah,
1: yeah. Or, yeah, I mean, there's so, so many reasons that people never want to expose. You know, you don't really actually want to expose your father, or you did try to and your mother didn't believe you. There's just so many reasons that you, you just bury it and then don't have it dealt with, and then you're 50 and dealing with severe depression. You know, Or you
2: don't want to admit that you're... The, your dirty goods.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you need to get your own history, your own childhood, your own background dealt with before you're really gonna be healthy and able to um, raise your own children and what you can,
2: can I ask you to hold on for a second because I want to make a parallel. I meet with, or I I did in the past for many years, I met with every couple that had their first child sometime in the first year of the child's life outside the womb. I asked them to come in so I could talk to them about discipline and family devotions. I wanted to get them before they ever had bad practices, all right? They would come in, and right away at the very beginning, I would say, now, were either of you physically abused by your father or your mother in discipline when you were growing up? The reason I ask that question is that if you have been abused physically as discipline, supposedly, you are so um, malformed, misshapen, so corrupted by that experience that you should know right away you can't trust yourself to know what's right with discipline. And I'm going to illustrate it by saying that a mother who was beaten by her mother or cursed at and obscenities used with her when she was growing up is a mother who is going to be determined that she will never beat her children and will never use obscenities, will never mock, will never say anything like what mother said. Well, the problem with that, it sounds good. I mean, you, you would want her to be determined never to reproduce her mother. But take it physically physically. A child who's been abused growing up in their discipline, beaten, okay, arms broken but beaten with anger, that child is going to be so determined as a parent, as a mother or father, that they're not going to do that, that they will not have the normal responses to the sin of their child. Because when their child does something that irritates them, their immediate thought is not going to be that should not have been done. Their immediate thought is going to be, oh, I'm irritated. Oh, I see. I remember. That's, oh, I can't be irritated. I can't. And as the years go by, sometimes as the months go by, that parent will suppress the normal and good and righteous things they should do in response to a rebellious child. They won't discipline that child. If they do, it'll be pro forma. It won't be really hurting the child because they can't hurt their children because that's what was done to them. And because of this, what ends up happening is you end up abusing your child because you suppress what is right and good in you as a parent Mm -hmm. until the point where the child does one more thing that is monstrous because you've let him grow into a monster. And at that point, you think, I have suppressed, I have been disciplined, I have never, 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 never. And then you just start beating the snot out of your child. You just lose it. And that's because you waited way too long to do what was right. So coming back to The issue of discipline. Mary Lee just said that if you have been abused as a child growing up by anybody, you cannot be trusted. You can't trust yourself to have a proper understanding of how to protect your children and how what steps to take. And you can't be trusted to argue with your husband or your wife in a way that's wise. So hear this, get help, don't trust yourself. Get other people's input who did not grow up being abused.
1: So, when a, you know, if you look at a situation where a child was abused and then you think, okay, so she is going to grow up and be extra protective and careful of her own daughter because she would never want the same thing to happen. And yet, you know, in this convoluted way, her own daughter becomes vulnerable because she is a mother is not meeting the emotional needs of that daughter because she herself is broken, you know? So it's a, it's, um, or
2: the mother will tell the husband that he has never kissed their daughter.
1: Yeah. Touch. Go ahead. Yeah. We knew a situation where a girl was very vulnerable because the mother had been molested by her father. And when she told her husband that he just swore, okay, I will never, you know, to protect my wife from being fearful um going to protect my daughter, protect myself. I'm never
0: going to show any physical yes, affection.
1: Yes. So you can only imagine you yeah. know, the vulnerability that leaves a girl with.
0: If you if you were subject to inappropriate touch as a child, as an adult, your calibration for what is appropriate yeah. physical affection between parents and children mm-hmm. will not be accurate. Mm-hmm.
1: So another thing that You just—we need to talk about though—is—is sex, you know, in our homes. Sex is created by God. It's a beautiful thing. It's normal, you know. It's—it's unfortunately, um, very, very many times, you know, sinful and perverted. But sex in itself is created by God, and therefore, children need to be, you know, needs to be talked about in healthy ways. It needs to be explained to them, age-appropriate. Um, and then little girls need to be told, you know, these are, these are, these areas of your body are called the private parts, you know, and we don't ever let anybody, don't ever let anybody touch your private parts, you know, and if anybody ever does try to, you come tell me because, you know, that's often the, the, you know, hook is a perpetrator always says, this is our little secret, you know? And so if anybody ever wants to, you know, tell you to keep a secret from mommy and daddy, that is the very thing you need to make sure
2: that yeah. you, that's what I would say to my to my kids. I would say, look, anybody ever says to you that they uh, you're not to tell me or your mother something? That is the one thing that you must tell us. And if they say they're going to kill you if you tell us, you tell us. And if they try to touch you, you scream bloody murder. And they tell you that if you keep screaming that they're going to kill you, scream twice as loud. In other words, we wanted our children to go completely unhinged at any threat to themselves sexually. And we taught them that. And we taught them that incidentally. We didn't make a big deal out of it. You know, we talked about it at the dinner table one night, you know. Hannah, you're getting older. Listen, if anybody ever, you know, it's dinner table and you just say anybody touches you where they shouldn't, you make sure that you scream
0: bloody murder. Please pass the mashed potatoes. Yeah, that's absolutely
2: how we handled it. But your children should know that you find your wife sexy Um, and you have different ways of showing it. And, And women, for heaven's sakes, touch your husband when he gets home, you know, tussle his hair. For heaven's sakes, I have so many men tell me that their wife just doesn't seem to realize how much it's encouraging to us to have our wives just touch us. Just to caress us, do that in front of your children so that your children don't think you're ashamed of sex. If God made your form beautiful, which is what scripture says about who was it? Was it Rebecca?
1: Yeah.
2: It was Rebecca. You know, she was beautiful of form. Uh, do we know what that means? You it know? means she's symmetrical. Yeah, <laughs> symmetrical. Yeah. With you, it means that she has... <laughs> the proportions conform to the golden mean. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So have sex be a normal have a lock on your bedroom door uh have them know that when you go into your bedroom and you close the door at night i can remember lying in bed one night when my dad got home from one of his many trips and my bedroom was next i remember listening to them laughing and laughing in the bedroom next door and you'd say well that's not sex. And I'd say, Oh yes, it was. I don't know how, I don't know why it was funny, but it was clear that it was sex, you know? And if you think that this is immodest, you're a product of Victorian England, which maybe there's never been as many prostitutes as there were in Victorian England. In other words, the the healthier sex gets the less, uh, psycho,
0: Yeah, the less attraction perversion has when sex is is healthy and fulfilling. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And the fact is, um, your children should know that you like your wife. Now, if you don't like your wife and your wife doesn't like you, I hope you're working on that. It is possible to come back from adultery. It's possible to come back from horrible sexual sin. We, as a church, have seen it, and it's the source of such joy to us all. But don't try to squelch it because you'll never come back if you're trying to hide it,
1: yeah, well, let me quick go to just the church in general, um because that's something that everybody in this nation is aware of if you're not you know hiding your head under a you know brick or something because of the number of priests. It's been in the news. How do you
2: hide your head under a brick? Well, bread? I
1: don't know. I couldn't think of what you were supposed to what, say. What
0: is the expression? A small-headed person hides under a brick. <laughs> okay. Unless you have your head under a rock. <laughs> Unless you oh, live, a under r- a rock. live under okay. a rock. All right. Okay. Have
1: your head in the sand. Okay. Have yeah. what? In the sand live under
2: a rock. all four head in the sand. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: Anyway, all that to say, everybody knows all the many, many, many stories. You know, many coming out of, you know, the Catholic Church, but many not. Many out of Baptist churches, many out of evangelical churches. And so there are just really basic things that churches need to do, you know, and insurance companies primarily, you know, even enforce this now because there have been so, so many lawsuits, but Sunday school rooms have to have windows in them and adults should not be teaching alone with children. People should not be counseling alone, you know, in the offices of a church. Children should not have the freedom to just run up and down hallways and, and, you know, sort of just scooch into side. Sunday school rooms that aren't being used. These are all things that our church has talked about and And implemented. And had to fight about. You remember when I
2: went to ECC, a couple of the pastors there did not want to have a light in their door. And they wanted to counsel alone with women with the door closed. Remember that?
1: I don't understand the part about the light.
2: Well, that's a window, a light. Okay, okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, so I was in a church recently where there was um, a man who counseled. And you know, we asked, well, um, there's doesn't, there's no window, there's no window in your office here where you would be doing the counseling. And he was like, "Is that a problem?" It's like, well, yes, actually, it is. (laughs) It's like I would have thought that your church would see that as a problem. So. Those are the types of things that the staff, the elders, trustees, whoever it is, you know, needs to be thinking about being aware of. Um, you
2: you have to have a rule when it comes to sex that if it looks bad, it is bad. That yeah. has to be the rule about dating, courting. It has to be the rule about counseling. It has to be the rule about bathrooms. It has to be the rule. If it looks bad, it's bad.
1: Yeah. So, okay, so one of the other things, kind of moving on, though. Let
2: me say one other thing about that. When I went into the ministry back in 83, my father wrote me, and he sent me a little article about some girl that had accused her youth pastor of sexually molesting her in the car on the way home from youth group. And he said to me, Tim... You must never counsel a woman alone in your office. Either have your door open in view of your secretary or you have your wife or somebody else there. Don't ever give another woman other than your own children a ride in your car alone. Don't ever do it. Don't ever be alone ever with a woman. Now, today, we're almost at the point where we have to do that with men also. We had a man who is homosexually Uh, a homosexual sinner, I won't go into him more, but he's moved away from our church. But when he came back, I had to think very carefully about whether I was willing to go into my office and talk with that man. And I told him, listen, I'm going to make a decision that I would never do if you were a woman, but I want you to know you must not lie about me. Otherwise, I'm not going to talk to you. Because it was after church and there was nobody else there. Yeah. And so, go ahead, love.
1: Well, okay, so he just transitioned, you know, just sort of into the idea of homosexuality. And again, in the church, there are things you can be aware of and thinking about. Um, Several years ago, there were a group of maybe junior high age girls in the church that every time I saw them, They were walking around with their arms around each other. And this was, you know, three or four. It wasn't just two girls that were always together. It was, you know, a little group of girls. And it might be these two together or these two together. But they always uh, were holding hands, walking around with their arms around each other. And it's just like, you know what? That is not really part of our culture. You know, down in Mexico, in some of the European countries, they do that. But we don't do that here in this country.
0: That stands out.
1: Yeah. And this is not even good. (laughs) It looks cute in a way, but it's not. So I talked to their mothers and I said, you know what? Your girls should just not be that familiar and that comfortable with all that touching with each other. You need to tell them to keep their hands to themselves and back off. You know, the parents were like, oh, really? You know, it's like, yeah, really? Um, because, okay, so just, you know, fast forward, heard of some friends of ours had a daughter come home from college with a friend, a girlfriend of hers. And they sat on the couch cuddling and tickling, and it was just like, "That is so weird." That very is very
2: conservative reform Christian cult.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. You know the pa-
2: denominational.
1: The, the father was a was a pastor. You know, they had several children. Sent their kids to Christian schools. You know, but the, but this girl comes home, you know, in this really. Unhealthy looking weird relationship. You know, well, they did confront her and said, you know, this does not look like you have a normal, you know, friendship with this girl. Is there something going on? Their daughter was very defensive, denied that there could be anything. And I think that she was, you know, she was telling the truth that had not yet progressed to something that was going to be completely. Um well, but <laughs> lesbian, you
2: know. Yeah, I have an already report on that. It was a lesbian relationship. We we tend to overemphasize copulation right. and private parts. And you know, they say sex begins in the kitchen. Well, it does with single people too. And it was a sexual relationship Right. which was lesbian in nature, which had not yet come to the point of being consummated physically.
1: Yes. Or, you know, consciously, you know, in these girls' minds, I don't think. Anyway, they they did warn their daughter and she went back to college and talked to some of her um, friends or her RA and just said, do you think this relationship looks unhealthy and weird? And they all said, yes, we do. So she was willing at that point to back off, you know, and essentially um, severed that friendship. But those are the kinds of things that we need to be aware of in our church. We had a situation in our home where one of our daughters was spending a lot of time with a girlfriend. Wait a
2: second. I'm not happy with you saying that it had not progressed to the point of being lesbian. And the reason is that if we only define homosexuality as physical, then we deny that malakoy means effeminate. If you have a man who presents in significant ways as feminine instead of masculine, he's guilty of a sin that keeps you from the kingdom of heaven. And so let's go to women, right? Right. If you have a couple where the possessiveness emotionally between the two women okay, Mm -hmm. is inappropriate, reminds you of marriage,
1: Mm -hmm. Reminds
2: you of an engaged or dating relationship. Mm -hmm. That God does not intend women. And the reason I'm pushing on this is so often what happens with women is they live together. They don't have any prospects of marriage or they don't want to get married. They live together. And as the years go by— they do develop into a physically homosexual relationship but it comes out of the emotional jealousy of the possessiveness of of just the focus on one another that is inappropriate
1: i wanted to just go back and talk about a situation that we had in our church and in our home Several years ago, but one of our daughters was, you know, just had a friendship with a girl that was a couple of years older than her, but it was becoming, you know, more and more sort of intense. It was, you know, getting more, um, just the two of them. How do you say that?
0: Um, Exclusive. Yes, yeah,
1: yeah. But we were, you know, as a family in the church, we knew we loved them. We, knew we loved this, their daughter, you know, so our guard was down, you know, until one day— we suddenly realized you know this looks like a dating relationship this is really weird our daughter was saying telling us that you know they were going to go somewhere that saturday but the other girl was planning it but it was a surprise and just like Sounds, well, and they
2: sat out in the car in the driveway for hours.
1: Yeah, and she came in, and I said, "Well, you know, what are we doing out there?" And she said, "Oh, we had to talk about things, you know, kind of like our relationship." And I was like, "No, no, no, this is just sounds like a girlfriend-boyfriend thing, you know." So, if,
0: <laughs> yeah, come on, say what you're thinking. Well, the uh, the famous definition—I'm trying to think which Supreme Court justice was—basically said, "I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it." And the idea that in a lot of these relationships, there is no. Um, scientific standard. There's no bright line where on this side of the line, totally okay. And on this side of the line, totally not okay. The middle of this is this whole gradient of stuff. But when you realize, oh, we are way on the other side of this line, you, you'll have those realizations and you might not have noticed getting closer and closer and closer and then crossing over and continuing, continuing, continuing. And then at a certain point you go, whoa, whoa, how did we get here? full stop, back up, we're not doing this. This is not okay. This can't happen.
1: Right, and that was...
0: And you always feel like a dunce Yeah. afterwards. You're like, how did I not notice this problem <laughs> until now? That's exactly how you feel.
1: Well, and you feel like a meanie too, you know? Both a
2: dunce and a meanie.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know, where you suddenly say to your daughter, you know what? You're not going to be friends with her anymore. And you feel like you know, you're a big meanie. Um, But in this situation where I expected our daughter to be very angry, defensive, um, she seemed relieved and was fine with that friendship being over. And again, you know, we should have seen it Earlier stopped it earlier, but I think she felt like it was so out of control that she didn't know what was going on either. Yeah. Um. So we pulled her back to safety. Her friend, you know, did go on to become a lesbian. Um,
0: if you look back at your own childhood and don't recognize friendships that you clearly should not have had, that were clearly destructive to you, you're an idiot. And then if you look at your child's life and think. That they don't have any friendships that they shouldn't have. You having the experience of having grown up, become an adult, looked back at childhood and said, Boy, my relationship with this person or that person was really twisted. That was mm. not good. Mm. Of course, your child's going to have exactly the same kinds of things. Like I I can I can think of a number of friendships that I had as a child where I could recognize that type of friendship again, that dynamic if i see it again i'll be like oh that's me and that's that other kid these names are different cuz it's two different kids but that's me and that other kid and if if you if you never ever intervene and say and choose to end some friendship that any one of your kids has you're probably just asleep at the wheel
1: mm-hmm.
0: it doesn't mean that every single friendship is always on the chopping block although any any individual friendship could be on the chopping block at a moment's
2: notice. You know, it's very interesting that um, as I've gotten older, I've noticed in counseling couples that we have men so far back on their heels in our culture that men are not able to have vegetables they like and vegetables they dislike. Now, I'm using that as an example because it is um, often true that men feel selfish to ask for food they like why should i get a choice my children have preferences my wife has preferences i should be a servant leader and shouldn't have preferences preferences the problem is that um the problem is that typically um a home where the father's preferences are not observed and honored in some way is a home where the father is not the head of the home. And it may be the wife, and it may be the children. There's going to be one of the three. It's either going to be that the children lead the home, which means that the home is wacko, or the wife is going to lead the home, which means the home is wacko, or the father is going to lead the home. And you say, well, the wife should lead the home if the father can't do a good job leading the home. And I say to you, I've never known a father that did a good job leading his home, never. Not even Adam. Not your father, right? Yeah, Not my father. And so where are these fathers who are worthy of honor? And the truth is...
0: Oh, Abraham. Noah.
2: No, yeah, 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 yeah. Noah. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. David, that's a good one. Solomon, that's a good one. You know, the only person that we know was the perfect head of his home was the Apostle Paul, who was single. (laughs) (laughs) You know. I do think it's important for a husband to, at times, request that his preferences be observed. I think it's a way of teasing out the reality of the home.
0: I draw the line at butternut squash. <laughs> See, I love butternut I can't squash. Can't stand it. Can't yeah. stand it. That's fascinating.
1: Our kids were talking recently about... I tried to... I love... I,
0: what is wrong with it? It's too you? sweet. I, I oh, don't okay. like sweet yeah. things.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. But our kids were all talking recently about how much they can't stand peas. It's like, oh, remember how often we had them when we were growing up? it was like, yeah, that's because your dad liked peas. <laughs>
0: I like lima beans, and there are some things that I'm willing to let my family kind of take a pass on.
2: I love lima beans. Butter and salt, a little bit of pepper. But you can't find them anymore. All they have is baby lima beans, and they don't taste as good. Yeah. But now let's, let's move on to your preferences about your children. That it is absolutely imperative that a father have jealousy over the bodies and minds and hearts of his children. I think a father should adore his children and should not want to give them up without a fight. Now, obviously, I'm talking about marriage. It should feel like he is losing part of himself when he transfers his daughter's hand to her husband at the beginning of the ceremony. Yeah. Okay? That is good and right. God has made uh, sex and love and the desire for children to be a force so intense that it's able to bust a child loose from the possessiveness and jealousy of a father and a mother. And I believe that a father has to be possessive about his children, both boys and girls, in such a way that his wife is relegated to a second-tier possessiveness. If the most possessive person in the home over the children is the wife, I do not believe that that is good or right because he's the head of the home and her possessiveness and jealousy should be principally focused on him. I'm not saying that mothers shouldn't be jealous or possessive. (laughs) That's insane. You know, woman, thy name is jealousy, you know, but now why am I bringing this up? Because I'm thinking, I'm sitting here thinking as Mary Lee's talking about that episode where our daughter's out in the driveway in this car with this woman. I remember being in the foyer with you as she's out there in the car. And I remember thinking, what is that woman doing? What is she doing? Not physically. I wasn't worried about that. But what's going on out there? Why is my daughter so concerned about pleasing a woman in our youth group? I don't like this. Now, you can think I'm insecure and jealous and petty and a little man, but that was what God used with me to wake me up to the fact that
0: something was wrong. And in many other cases, not liking it is itself a sufficient reason. Yes. And so
2: Mary Lee and I talked, and I don't remember the specific words, But I do remember that we made a decision right there and then, we don't like this. We both agreed. And then we decided that when she came in, we were going to tell her, that relationship is over. We decided that there was going to be a full stop, that there was going to be a brick wall, that there was going to be before and after that conversation. And we were worried what was response to us would be. Right. And when we said to her that relationship is over, my recollection is it was a very brief conversation because immediately we saw that she's relieved. And so you learn two things here. You learn number one, the parents need to awaken their feelings about things and about people in their home and about what's going on with their children. But number two, Pray that God gives you a daughter who is malleable. I'm not saying that she immediately becomes whatever you tell her to be, but that she's not hard and unworkable. Because, I mean, what would we have done, love, if she had fought us on that? I just don't even know what we would have done. I know it would have devastated
0: us. Boarding school, probably. Yeah. Because that's a safe place to send a bunch of girls all together. Yeah,
1: Yeah. I, I remember a few years ago thinking I had heard it all. And then I heard about teenage girls from Christian homes and a Christian school being inappropriate with each other sexually at a sleepover. And it was like, okay, wow, that one is new to me. Had not heard that one before. Now I think I've heard it all. Um, but I do want to go back to our home and another situation we had uh, where there was a man who was teaching at a Christian school was coming to Bloomington once a week to christian, take a class
2: christian college
1: um anyway, so he needed to spend the night um somewhere in Bloomington so that he could get up in the morning and just you know go straight to an early morning class. And someone had presented that um, situation to us, and we had a guest room, and it was like, sure, you know, he's fine. He can spend the night. Um, So, you know, he had meals with us. He uh, played with our kids. um, And one weekend, um, my brother and sister-in-law had also spent the night... And in the morning, we were kind of all gathered at the door, heading different directions. My brother and sister-in-law were leaving. This man was going to his class. Our kids were going to school. Anyway, so this man was was holding our, I think, three-year-old daughter in his arms. And then when he um, put her down and left, my sister-in-law turned to me and said, I would not let that man hold my daughter. It's like, ooh, you know. Uh, wake Someone's up.
0: picking something up.
1: Yeah, that we again just were kind of oblivious to. But as soon as she said that, it was like, yeah, there's something that feels, um, how would you even describe it? You know, weird, unhealthy,
2: clearly um, unmanly.
1: Yeah. Anyway, he
2: was very effeminate.
1: So anyway, again, it was just one of these things where uh, we were maybe a little slow at, on the uptake, um, and but once once we became I'm nodding my head, yeah, I'm once, disgusted with myself, yeah, once we became uh, aware, um, it was full stop. <laughs> that man. No longer spend the night in our house. And again, it's awkward. That's the thing. People just want to avoid the awkwardness of it. But we just had to tell them, I'm sorry, you know, our hospitality with you is over. Uh, We didn't go into detail. Um, You know, maybe we should have. I don't know. But we, you know, the, the important thing at that point for us was our home, our family, our children. And that situation was over. Yep.
0: Uh, earlier you were mentioning some specific things that churches should do, like not having one-on-one pastoral counseling of women, having a window in a door for counseling. Uh, one of the other things is anytime somebody comes from another church and is going to serve in ministry in your church, call their friends. Yes. Yeah. Talk to people they worked with the previous churches. And this is also true of Christian schools, that a lot of organizations in Christian world are just revolving doors mm-hmm. where something untoward happens it may or may not oftentimes it does but doesn't get reported may or may not rise to the level of criminality everyone decides to brush it under the carpet and allow this person to resign with dignity and move along to some other place yeah and i'm aware of i'm aware of several cases where um i mean there's umpteen cases like this but where a person perpetrated sexual abuse got caught and then just kind of checked out moved along started going to a different church, started teaching at a different school, and nobody ever called back and probed about it. And um Gavin de Becker actually has a really great book called The Gift of Fear, and he talks about how our intuition and how our decision making and how our processing information interacts with our emotions. Like if you feel fear about something, that's an important signal your body's telling you that for a reason. Good book. A lot of different contexts it's applicable to, but he had a chapter about hiring people and firing people. And he said, not calling people's references and actually talking to people who knew them or worked with them is a mistake that almost all employers make. And his particular tip that I thought was brilliant was people won't normally list as a reference somebody that they know is going to say something bad about them. Some people do. Some people like you'll call somebody's reference and they're like, oh yeah, I fired him for drug abuse on the job. You're like wow, and he still listed you. Amazing. But oftentimes, they'll list somebody who they expect to cover for them. But De Becker's plan was talk to the reference they list. And as you're finishing up that conversation, ask, by the way, was there anybody else who worked closely with this person? Get a secondary reference and then talk to that person and you'll find out tons and tons of useful information. So if your church is considering hiring somebody, if you are on a you know, pastoral search committee, or evaluating somebody who wants to serve in youth group, talk to people who have worked with them before. Talk to parents of the youth group they served at at other XYZ church. Don't just blindly accept somebody in. Well, I'm going to
2: be discouraging here because I'm going to tell you in my experience, you will never, ever, ever, ever get the truth, ever. It won't be told, it won't be asked, it won't be wanted, and it Everybody lies about that. I mean, it's just universally true that people, the burden of proof is on anybody that expresses concern or judgments about anybody else. We've been taught never to judge anybody. It's why I actually, at the end of listening to all of Boswell's Life of Johnson, I went back and I thought, what was so unusual? Well, what was unusual? His whole book was a collection of men sitting around making judgments about one another and other people. And I got to the end of Grant's memoirs, uh, Ulysses Grant, the Civil War general this last week. He gets to the end and he sums up the character excellencies and the character defects of all the generals that he worked with. And again, it was like it was like radical. And so one of the things I would say in application of what you're just exhorting us to do, Andrew, which you're absolutely right on. That due diligence is Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You have to work your butt off to try to get the truth about people. You have to do it. I was thinking that he was going to recommend at the end, do you have somebody else? What I would ask is, is there anything that you haven't told me that you need to tell me? Yeah. And that does get people to tell you the things that they don't want to. Because you're asking, what don't you want to tell me that you need need to to tell me? The other thing is, I think all of us need to return to giving true references. And so when people ask me for references, I require two things out of them. Number one, you must say you will never see it. It has to be confidential. All right? Number two, I will criticize you in my recommendation. Okay, because I don't trust any recommendation that doesn't tell me the weaknesses of of somebody. But I also put in the reference that you may expect that I will not say anything critical and you may think me saying what I'm about to say indicates that this is a bad person. No, it doesn't. But I don't think recommendations are worth anything if you don't say what some of their weaknesses
0: are. Okay. yep. So that's. Do you think it's fair to say that children who have a healthy set of parents and are part of a stable home and are part of a healthy church are able to bounce back more bounce back. is not the right term, but people who are unsupported waifs are less able to recover from the damage. Nobody's unscathed. Yeah, I don't,
2: we probably shouldn't touch that. That, that probably is. No, 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 that's a good question. My, my hesitation is that, and I'm not, this isn't her hyperbole the consequences of the abuse of children sexually are unfathomable and lifelong i don't think anybody can tr- anybody who's been involved in long time ministry in these areas i don't think anybody can truthfully say that if you Go into working on your past in a biblical way, with godly, wise other Christians helping you. That you can promise them that they'll get past it, right?
1: Yeah, I, they very. You uh, never want to use the word "bounce back."
2: Yeah, you know? <laughs> this is not a thing you get over. But right. even
1: past, yeah,
2: you learn to live with it by faith. One of, I would say, the most difficult. Spiritual issue for me in ministry other than my own sin is the issue of <laughs> and i don't even know how to put it, but the pain that you the pain that you feel and see and experience vicariously, although vicarious sounds like a crazy word to use of people who suffer because of being uh Being used for the lust and the anger, especially of men, and most awfully of their own dad. You can't help but ask God why. And you can't help but have difficulty trusting God and his providence and sovereignty as you look back on that. And I don't know what to do with that. I mean, I know theology. I know the meaning of God's sovereignty and providence. I know that all things do work together for the good. But I'll tell you, if we don't have places like that that test us to the very edge of our limits, of our faith, and plead with God. I remember coming home from one particularly horrible thing with Mary Lee, and we often work together or together and another pastor, or another woman. I remember we got home, this was back at our old house, and I remember Mary Lee looking at me and saying, why did God make sex? I, I don't know how any man could be faithful in pastoral ministry as a Christian and work with his wife in the way he should without his wife or him at some point looking at each other and saying, why did God make sex? Because it's irrational, you know the the sins we commit sexually are insane. I remember Bob Erder out at First President Boulder. I worked under him for a year. I remember him saying that I was an intern. I remember him saying one time at the end of the table with all the pastors sitting around the table. I remember him saying, "All sin is irrational. I've never forgotten that." Mm-hmm. But sexual sin is particularly just irrational because its destructiveness is Mm mind-boggling and consequential and long-standing and permanent. And it doesn't mean that you don't seek healing. You have to do that. But even seeking healing for someone who is a victim of abuse is such a painful thing. Because the only way you know how to cope with it is put it in that box that will go into the grave with you that you were referring to earlier.
1: Yeah. Uh, There's a book um, called…
2: The Bible? (laughs) Uncle Barry Finn?
1: What's the name of the book? Sometimes (laughs) a great notion. Um, What is the name of the book I'm talking about? Hamlet. Stop it. (laughs) Uh,
2: I don't know. What book? What's it about? Do I know the book?
1: Sexual Healing.
2: The Wounded Healer?
1: Yeah. No, The Wounded Heart. Okay. All right. And so a friend of mine that had been um, molested by a teacher uh, as she was growing up um, and just had never dealt with it, never talked to anybody that book had been recommended to her and she picked it up and she kind of could see the direction it was going in that she was going to have to think yeah think and feel, feel and feel <laughs> all the things and feelings you know that she'd had grown up with and um she says she threw the book across the room was not ready to go there and did not pick it up for another 10 years so just to give us the picture of how deep And how buried these things are. Now, fortunately for her, um, the Spirit opened her heart and brought someone into her life that was willing and able to, you know, approach her again and have her be willing to go through the book. And she has gone through a lot of healing and she has taken um, uh, several other women through that book now um, toward their own healing. But that's what we need to be working toward. Is
0: Yeah, that book is The Wounded Heart, Hope for Adult Victims of Childhood Sexual Abuse by Daniel Allender.
1: Thank you. Yes. So one of the things that was so interesting in that book was um, he had already been working for several years with people that had abuse in their backgrounds. And somebody asked him— um, so, how'd you get in, interested in this? Were you abused and molested as a child? And he said, "No." And so they rephrased it and said, "Were you ever used?" And I'm, you know, I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember the exact wording, but basically, were you ever used for the sexual satisfaction of somebody older than you when you were growing up? And it was like, "Oh, well, yes, actually." He instantly could think of three scenarios from his childhood where that had been the case, but he had never actually put himself in the category of sexually abused. Um, But yeah, you know, a camp counselor. And again, you know, this is just one of these huge categories. I mean, how often do you hear about kids getting molested by other kids or counselors at camp, and yet we don't want to throw out all camps? I'm a big believer in kids going to camp, you know? So, um, but that is a book that we recommend. There's a workbook that comes along with it that has, you know, helped who knows how many people. But
2: I want to warn us not to trust experts. What we need is to look at sex and sexual sins, including the abuse of children, as the proper purview and obligation, and responsibility, and authority of the Church of Jesus Christ and her officers and her older women. And we need to bring back into the Church, under the Church's authority, the protection of the families of the Church, the protection of the children of the Church, the proper response, the discipline, the exposure, the reporting, the recommendation of divorce, And yes, you will recommend divorce. No woman should be vulnerable to being left to her own decisions and her own feelings. When it comes to that, that's what it means in the Westminster Standards when it says that these matters of divorce are subject to the authorities of the church. It doesn't use that exact language, but look it up and you'll see it. We don't need professionals. What we need is shepherds and their wives, the tightest two women. And you say, well, none of us know what we're doing. And I say, do you love your sheep? Do you have a sense of responsibility for them? Do you recognize threats to them? Do you cry for them day and night with tears like the Apostle Paul? Then you are the person they trust. That's why they put you into your position. And so do your work. Don't try to hire outside experts to do your work. Now, I'm very much in favor of what Andrew has said, and can you repeat it about reporting? You do, not
0: have the, you do not have the option of declining to report. In most states, it's required by law explicitly, but you have a moral obligation. Yes, you have a moral obligation certainly everywhere. In most U.S. states, you have a legal obligation. You must report. You don't just get to tell somebody on church staff or somebody at the camp that something happened. You have to report it to law enforcement. And you don't have the option of delaying until
2: the next elders meeting a discussion with the elders whether or not to report. No. You have to have an attorney or somebody on staff that knows the code of the jurisdiction above you and knows precisely – What is required? You need to know what it says about which parts of the body touching which parts. That's how specific the laws are on these things. And then you have to know what the requirements are in terms of the timing of the reporting, because there's a principal in our state who was prosecuted for failing to report the same. Within a couple of hours of when he found out what was going on in his high school, he delayed it until late in the afternoon, and he ended up being prosecuted and fined. He appealed it to the Supreme Court, and he had good reason for delaying it a few hours. He did report it. It was not until after he reported it that they prosecuted him for not reporting it immediately. I had one other argument I wanted to pick with you. Okay, but but let's get back to that, but just one other thing. The reason you report is that God has not delegated to the officers of Christ's church and to their wives the responsibility of handling felonies, violations of the civil law. And you see this kind of thing with Calvin and the city fathers they would have their weekly meeting of discipline, and then some things they would transfer over. To they the, would refer to the magistrates. Yes, to the magistrates, to the authorities. So even if your laws don't require it, don't you ever think that you can handle battery, rape, molestation. These are civil law matters. You can handle the confrontation and taking them to the police, which is what we always do immediately. You can handle helping, talking, counseling. You can handle crying with them. You can handle all the things that are properly under your authority and responsibility, but you may not enforce the law or decide not to enforce the law. When you have violations of the law that are serious
0: like that, you report. All right, go ahead. So the only argument that I want to pick is when you said we don't need professionals, and I would say those two aren't mutually exclusive. Anytime there's abuse of a child, pastoral care is desperately needed. And the absence of pastoral care is a catastrophe in that situation. But that doesn't mean that the only need, in this case, obviously, reporting to law enforcement is needed. And in many cases, professional counseling and in some cases, medical treatment is warranted and needed so it's not a it's not a hierarchy of professionals come first then cops and then down at the bottom are pastors all of these things are uh in many cases necessary
2: i would agree with you with doctors i would not agree with you with counselors
0: okay and and granted i didn't say that in every Although, case a counselor yeah, 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 is required yeah.
2: so that's probably where we meet and have agreement there are definitely cases which are so difficult to deal with that there comes a time where you really do need to pay a professional counselor to take it on but what we what we have a tendency to do today especially in the conservative reform world is to say well you need counseling you need counseling is code for you need to not be my problem right now, yeah, and that's what i'm worried about, and especially when you combine it with homosexuality, bestiality, incest, um, child molestation, things of that nature, it scares the pants off you as a pastor, an elder an older woman of the church because you know you're not sufficient to deal with it, and so you think well who who is trained about this?" But that's what I'm trying to circumvent, because the fact is nobody loves those victims or the perpetrators, really, the way you love them. And love is so much of what God uses to accomplish repentance and healing. Yes. And so don't be dismissive. Yes, you're ignorant. So are we, you know. The
0: the two sides of that coin are you have, as a pastor, you have— Much more relationship and love and care for, but that also means you have your own personal things at stake where a professional who can come in and has no relationships on the line has some advantages. So it's not either or, and it's not always one or the other counselors have a huge amount of motivation to
2: avoid biblical commitments because of the ethics of this the psycho- psychological and psychiatric professions today. And so they're not as lily-white in oh, their no. motivations as you might think they are. I'm not talking about you, Andrew. Right. But just be aware that we all do have motivations that are not
0: pure. Okay. Yep. Yeah, each each of those roles, whether you have a professional counselor, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a pastor, all of them have different vulnerabilities, yes, yeah, different yeah. incentives, and different ways that they will tend more to fail. And sometimes they can actually benefit each other because they have yeah. complementary weaknesses, but they don't have aligned weaknesses. One will be able to help where another is weaker. But it's not a guarantee. Certainly, if somebody hangs out a shingle and they have a degree in biblical counseling, that does not mean you get to outsource your judgment and your decision-making to them.
2: Can I make one other recommendation at the very end, which is there are cases where, because of your long-standing relationship with the victim and also with their families, you know them inside and out, and they do need professional counseling but you also are dealing with them in the context of maybe a marriage that's going through divorce, custody battles. There are reasons why pastors and their wives, elders and their wives, uh, need to stay involved with people to go into counseling. And in those situations, what would normally happen is after a period of time, you would want to know how things are progressing, and you would want counsel from the counselor. About how to handle specific situations. And that counselor will die before they will say anything to you. They will say that the rules of the laws of confidentiality prohibit them from talking to you. All you need to do to get past that is before you send somebody from the church to that person for counseling, you explain that it would be helpful if they would tell the counselor before they enter counseling that They have a stipulation. Stipulation is they want to have a list of a couple of men and women who have the freedom of calling and talking to them and that they will have no confidences from those people and that the counselor needs to be willing to answer questions and to divulge anything she thinks or he thinks will be useful to them as they care for your soul permanently. And so if you get out a document, a disclosure form, you have everybody sign it and they go in knowing that. That counselor can't use, with the law, or you know, or the professional association. Yeah, rules. they can't use those rules to obstruct the natural flow of information from one authority to another. That's necessary.
0: Okay. Well, the encouragement to parents is: God provides for us for our kids. There is healing after abuse. There are many, many ways that God protects us. Individually, and also as families, and also as churches. Uh, Is there anything particularly for moms that are habits or spiritual disciplines that you would recommend to them if they are afraid of this issue and struggle with faith over it?
1: Yes, we do not want to live in fear. And if that is your primary uh, feeling about your own children and your raising of them and your ability to protect them. You need to be in prayer about it, asking the Holy Spirit to help you um, and to be able and willing to talk to another woman in the church, a pastor's wife, an elder's wife, um, Titus Two woman, and open up your own fears um, about this whole type of situation so that you can move on and be the kind of mother that you need to be. So, and I just think, just be willing to see what you see. You know, if you have a teenage brother coming out of a bedroom of his Mm -hmm. little sister and he's like, oh, yeah. Oh, it's three o'clock
2: in the morning and he says, oh, yeah, I just remembered I left a sock in there.
1: Yeah. I mean, really, seriously, as ridiculous as these things sound, we literally did talk to a mother, you know, who had that, you know, you know, the brother is leaning over the his little sister's bed and she walks in and he's like fumbling around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Looking for my pencil. You know, it's just like, seriously, if there is something that looks out of order, it's out of order, and deal with it. Don't just.
2: And the freedom is that we know that original sin exists, and so we have this wonderful liberty of not idealizing the patriarchs. They
0: were men like us. When somebody who doesn't like the Bible is like, "Well, do you know what the patriarchs did?" I'm like, "Boy, boy, howdy! You probably don't know the half of it. Let's open up Genesis and read something." And 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 you know, can the church? Res- Can the
2: church return to the law of God so that we can be happy? Because when the law of God diagnoses us with God's severity and holiness accurately, it's such a relief. It's such a relief to us. I was going to say at the very beginning of this talk something that I think is so important we do when it comes to sexual abuse which is you not only need to do what Mary Lee said, which is see what you see, but then you need to diagnose it properly. And the only way to do that is to name the levels of offense. And so let's say, for instance, that it is a father and that he's molesting his own daughter. Okay, well, you you need to name Everybody needs to hear name the fact that a father is molesting a child. right? We're all in agreement. Then you need to name that a man is molesting a woman. All right. You all with me? Then you need to name that an older person is molesting a younger person. Then you need to name the fact that a father, a man, is molesting the child of the child's mother, that that man is married to that child's mother. In other words, you see where we're headed. Unpack every layer. Unpack every layer because that's what the law does. The law shows us the horror of our sin. And people, if you've never experienced it, unpack the levels of your sins. Because until you do that, you will never have the joy of your salvation. You will never see the gospel for what it is.
0: If you keep the sins small, the
2: grace stays small. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Take joy in being forgiven much. Discover how much you are forgiven
0: because then you'll love Jesus much. Well, thank you for talking with me, Tim. Thank you, Mary Lee. Appreciate being here with you guys.
1: Thank you, Andrew.
0: We love you. Out of Our Minds is brought to you by New Geneva Academy. NGA trains men for the work of ministry more information go to newgenevaacademy.com thanks for listening we'll be back in a couple of weeks